Well, welcome to the Sheriff Lawless and Some Guy Named Dave podcast. Hashtag SLGND. I'm Dave Gosher, and thank you for tuning in. This is the interview series, and certainly during this quarantine across the country, we've tried to reach out and get uh, some intriguing guests, and our guest here today is certainly at the top of that list, Keith Jones from the NHL and NBC and TV color analyst for the Philadelphia Flyers, also co-hosts a morning show in Philadelphia Jonesy, thanks for doing this. Um, is there anything you don't do these days when, under normal circumstances? TV, radio, you're kind of a, a multimedia mogul, don't you think? Uh, I've been lucky, I'll tell you that, Dave. <laughs> yeah, it has not uh, been uh, lacking as far as opportunities have gone since I retired from the game 20 years ago. So I, uh, I've i been very fortunate in that regard. Didn't think it was going to go as well as it has when I first started. Struggled mightily when I started on ESPN and then was fortunate to find my groove probably five or six years into doing local TV stuff in Philadelphia where it became a lot more comfortable than it was when I started. How did you eventually find your groove? Was it trial and error? Was it a matter of reps? How did you get there? It was reps, and I give that advice to anybody that's trying it. We've had lots of players come in that are still in the middle of their careers and some that have uh, recently retired, and some struggle like I did when I first started, and I always try to pass on the same advice that Darren Pang gave me when I started at ESPN, just do it. Uh, you'll eventually become comfortable with it. But the difficult challenge is, is when some of the higher ups are telling you to be yourself. And as soon as they tell you that, you know, you're not doing very well. So (laughs) if you didn't know it already, that's a reminder that they want you to loosen up and become a little bit more comfortable. And it does take time. There's no question that uh, there is the rare player that can come in after retirement and do a great job right off the bat. But uh, for the majority of us, it takes a lot of practice. There's a lot that I want to get to with you, Jonesy, your playing career, your time at Western Michigan, but just staying on the the broadcasting element of it for now, what is that dynamic like in studio at NBC? You know, hockey fans across the country see yourself, Mike Milbury, Catherine Tappan, Liam McHugh, among others. On a nightly basis, if we were going to eavesdrop in that studio, what's the dynamic like? It's very similar to a locker room with maybe not as uh, much bad language. So there is um, there is a mutual respect that goes with everybody that um, I've been fortunate enough to work with. Uh, teamwork is a big factor, and uh, being a good teammate goes a long way in having longevity in, in our career. And I think uh, having fun when it's appropriate and and then getting serious and dealing with the big things that happen, not just on the ice, but off the ice and any of the difficult uh, things that can be hard to talk about, trying to work through them with some people that have been there and have a lot of experience like Mike Milbury has. Uh, that comes in handy. So it's it's great to be able to bounce things off people that are looking at it from different angles and kind of take in what they have to say and then respectfully uh, give your own point without uh, trying to make it into something where you're becoming the show. I think that's probably uh, the number one thing that uh, I think makes it work and appreciating other people's opinions and not uh, always believing that just because you have an opinion doesn't mean that it's right. 
Do you filter it out with, say, it's yourself and Mike on set? Do you, between periods, do you, you know, do you kind of sort through it a little bit before you guys hit the air for the intermissions and the post game, or is, or is a lot of it kind of off the cuff? Remarkably, the majority of it is off the cuff. And uh, you know Mike Milbury well, and I know a lot of fans uh, either love him or hate him, which is what makes him good TV. Uh, But there is a, there's a spontaneity to Mike that can be shocking in the way that he goes about doing it. He very rarely wants to give you a heads up on which way he's heading. And you have to be on your toes. You have to pay attention to everything that um, he's saying. And you never know what direction it's going to go. But he uh, he is awesome to work with. He's a very, very good friend of mine. And uh but there is uh, there's some challenges when you work with Mike, and you have to be ready to uh, to react and then give your honest opinion based upon uh, how you feel at the time without trying to make it into a big time argument. What is the challenge that you're not really sure at times where he might go with it, and you have to react to that? Yeah, he's unpredictable, and you, you know yeah. you, you've we've built up a trust with one another where. I think he appreciates the fact that I have a lot of respect for all the different angles that he can come at something because of his vast experience. Um, I also have respect for the shock factor that is Mike Milbury. And I think there's reasons why people enjoy tuning in to a person that has that type of dynamic. And I've always appreciated the fact that he's got a willingness to go out there on a limb. And at times I may not agree with him, but I do appreciate the fact that we can have a debate about it. So Patrick Sharp's come in, Jonesy, over the last couple of seasons, and he seems like he's a real nice fit. Have you worked with him in terms of just off to the side and given him your nickel's worth of free advice, or how is that dynamic? Surprisingly, worked? not a lot. He doesn't need much. Like he, he is a natural. He is um, he's an extremely hardworking guy who loves watching hockey. And one of the keys to doing this job is having an appreciation of the game. And there's some players that even when they're in the midst of having all-star seasons don't watch the games on their off nights. There's some guys that like to get away from it. There's some guys that might not be able to name five or six different players that are playing in a different conference on a different team. Um, That can be a challenge for some guys because they're that good at the game that they don't need to pay as much attention to it. But Sharpie's a student of the game and still is watching the young guys that are coming up into the league. He has a lot of good information on players that are trying to cut their teeth in the National Hockey League, and he also has a real recency uh, bias because he just played the game, and that certainly helps our broadcast a lot. He has a lot of charisma, and he's got a real... uh, gift of looking good on camera as well so he's, uh, I wish, he's I a wish we all had wish don't I we had all that. don't we all yep you gotta stay in shape when sharpie's standing beside you that's for sure yeah shane and i shane Knighty and i joke around there is not enough makeup in the world to make us look that good uh, you know, i'm, I'm with you guys on that one no doubt <laughs> what do you miss the most here jonesy it's been a month or so since the pause what do you miss the most about what you do the time of year i mean it's the it would be playoffs now it would have been the uh, the stretch run and it was getting really exciting i mean that that's what i miss the most and the games this time of year are fabulous 
uh, going to the rink or heading to the studio on a beautiful sunny spring day. Uh, you got a little hop in your step and you can't wait to watch multiple games on any given night because the competition is that uh, impressive. So I do miss that a lot and I do look forward to seeing it and I'm really hopeful that uh, we get back and have some meaningful uh, playoff games before this season uh, goes goes away. There have been a myriad of, I guess, options or or thoughts that have been put forth about what the NHL might look like if and when it can resume. Uh, Do any of those scenarios pique your interest the most? Just starting with the playoffs when we return is what piques my interest the most. Uh, Unfortunately, some teams that are battling for playoff positioning won't be in the playoffs, but I think um, that's our best Uh, scenario at least in my eyes that we just start we have a regular playoff I'm I'm not confident that fans will be in the building I'm not confident that we as announcers will be in the building Uh, but I am confident that the product on the ice will be outstanding Uh, the players have never been healthier from the respective teams before the playoffs have started it would be a made-for-tv event there's there's no question about that And I think it would be a great opportunity for us to show off our game because there would be a lot more eyes than ever uh, watching it. So I'm I'm hopeful, you know, six, eight weeks from now, we're talking about Stanley Cup playoffs. and, And a couple months after that, we're talking about a team raising the Stanley Cup. So no no games to tune up. Just if you're in right now, if you're top eight in the East or the West, you're in and and right to game one. I, I think that's probably... Uh, what we're going to be down to based upon just the calendar and then also keeping a, being mindful that we have another season just around the corner. So I think you could sell that to players and their families. Uh, you had 16 teams left. Uh, you can tell the families, look at these guys are going to be away for a while. They're playing for what they work so hard during the regular season for. And I think there'd be a lot of buy-in from not just the players themselves, but, but from their families also. And, you know, eight teams will be out in the first couple of weeks. So you'd have you'd be down to eight teams, quickly down to four. And before you know it, you'd have two playing for the Stanley Cup. And I think that would work. I think it's a tougher sell if you were, you know, say Major League Baseball and trying to sell an entire season of the players being away and being sequestered from their families. I think that would be obviously a much more tougher uh, thing to get across and get a, to, to have the players agree to. But playoffs would be... In my eyes, especially as a former player, and if I was playing, I would love to get a crack at trying to win that cup and go out there and play some seven-game series and battle with uh, the 16 teams that would have been in the playoffs when the season ended. Keith Jones joining us on the interview series here on the Sheriff Lawless and Some Guy Named Dave podcast. Jonesy, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Shows, books, housework, yard work, what have you been up to? I live on a farm, Dave. I live on a dirt road. (laughs) And I I have 16 acres of grass to cut. And normally at this time of the year, I've got someone else coming over to cut it. But I've got my own tractor. It's not used as much as it should be, but it's being used now. 
I've never enjoyed cutting the grass more than I have. <laughs> it gets me outside. I'm out uh, in nature. I've walked my dog more uh, to the point where you know, he's a big con- uh, cane corso, a big bull mastiff. I, I come over to him. I say, you want to go for a walk? He can't get his head far enough down uh, to the ground, trying to not allow me to get his collar around his neck. So I've done a lot of that, and I've done some working out to try to uh, stay fit mentally and physically and just kind of been doing a lot of that stuff. So it, the time is moving by, and uh, obviously I'm in a much more fortunate position than a lot of people, so grateful for that and also worried about everybody else. Yeah. How long does it take to cut 16 acres? It takes me 12 hours to get the whole thing done. I, I but I found that uh, the bouncing around doesn't feel good on the butt. So I, I do about eight hours in one day and then eight the next. The back just doesn't work that good. I've had a lot of gophers and potholes around and you jar in that jar in your body in all different directions before you're done. So I would say that uh, it's a two day job. So no more than eight hours in one stretch for me. Um, I wanted to take you a little bit down memory lane, Jonesy, and um, I've, I'm intrigued by your path to the NHL. And, and it's kind of the, the road less traveled, I think, for for a lot of guys. But could you kind of take us through your, you know, you're playing junior C hockey in Ontario. Um, how does how does one go from that to the pro career you had in the NHL. Yeah, it's interesting. I played midget uh, AAA hockey, and which is where a lot of the players get drafted to the OHL from. And after that, I had some aspirations that I might be a low uh, draft choice to the OHL. It didn't happen. So I set my sights on playing junior B hockey, and Brantford had a team in town that Rob Blake was trying out for. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of neat. So I tried out for that team. Had nothing, I didn't have many doubts in my mind that I would be playing for them, but they ended quickly. I was cut in a matter of a couple of weeks, and I suddenly became interested in junior C hockey, which I knew <laughs> nothing about. And it's uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's small Canada, small town Canada. It's ride a school bus to the games. It's bring your girlfriends with you if you want on the bus. It's some guys were married. Some 20 year old guys were married and it was brawls every night. And (laughs) it was police escorts out of small towns that took a lot of pride in their teams. But I played in Paris, Ontario, just outside of Brantford and moved there when did some high school, finished up my high school there and just played hockey and thought it was the greatest thing. I became a much better player, was fortunate that I grew probably five or six inches at that time and played there as a 16 year old, loved it so much I went back as a 17 and then turning 18 year old for another couple of seasons and then decided, you know what, I'd like to try Junior B, but I don't wanna try back out in Brantford since they cut me a couple of years prior. And I headed to Niagara Falls and played junior B there. So uh, let me back up. The wives and girlfriends could go on the school bus to the games? Yep. A case of beer there in between the seats for after the game. We wore cowboy pants or cowboy boots, sweatpants, and a crappy T-shirt. It was uh, it was top notch. There's no doubt about that. But I have great memories of playing on those teams. And uh, we had uh, an average team, but we had a great group of guys that I'm still friends with a lot of the players that I played with then. And then Junior B was a little bit different. 
uh, they actually paid for your sticks there, and uh, <laughs> they give you. I think we had like a seventy dollar a week uh, stipend that went towards our room and board, and I thought that was the greatest thing when I got that seventy dollar check and I was being paid to play hockey. I was just in shock, and was still a huge Maple Leaf fan at that time. Used to go to games at Maple Leaf Gardens as an eighteen year old, turning nineteen. So I was already draft eligible once. And was an just an absolute avid fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and never thought that I would ever play a game on that ice surface at Maple Leaf Gardens. I was just there to watch and and then looked and wonder at players like Eddie Olchuk, who was playing for the Leafs at that time, and yeah. thought he was like the greatest thing since sliced bread. So had no idea that. Uh, I would ever have a chance to play in the NHL. I'd really, the aspirations weren't there. It was just I was playing hockey, having fun, and I was glad that uh, I was getting my grade 13 under my belt and getting ready to go to college. When you got to the point, and I want to get to your time at Western Michigan, but what do you remember about that first ever game you played at Maple Leaf Gardens? You know, the funny part of that story, Dave, is the first game of the Capitals season in 92, the year that I had finally become Washington's property and signed a contract, I was trying out for the team. And I'd been uh, told by David Poyle in training camp, the last day of camp that I was being sent to Baltimore to play for the Skipjacks. And I was mad. And I was mad for one reason. I I didn't know if I could actually play in the NHL, but I wanted to play one game. And that (laughs) one game was going to be at Maple Leaf Gardens. So I had this huge argument with David Poyle about it. You're sending me down, and I was way over the top in my um, in my reaction <clears throat> to the point where David Poyle, when I left that meeting, started to wonder if he made a mis- made a mistake not bringing me up. But the only reason I did that is because <clears throat> I wanted to play one game in the NHL, and if I was going to do that, I wanted to do it at Maple Leaf Gardens. So yeah. I didn't get the chance that year. I did later on. Uh, in my second season, and things went well, I was pretty pumped up to play, as uh, you can imagine, getting a chance to play very close to where I grew up and also a team that I was watching probably four or five years previously as a fan. Is it true that you're the second best player to come out of Brantford, Ontario? I tell people that, Dave, but it's not true. <laughs> There's about 12 other Brantford players ahead of me on that list, but we've got Gretzky and we've got Doug Jarvis. We got two guys with records. Jarvis has the Ironman record as well. Never um, didn't miss a game. I think for over eight or nine hundred games in a row. And Gretzky has every other record, so we've got that covered. I don't know. I'd put you right behind Gretzky. I don't care what anyone else says. I think yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there is yep. a sign, home of Wayne Gretzky there, and I did paint on <laughs> and Keith Jones at one time. But You put it like in the fine print underneath it? It was quickly taken down after that, but yeah, Gretzky exactly. gets a kick out of it. Hey, how did you end up from junior, your kind of your uh, toiling in junior hockey to ending up at Western Michigan? So during that junior B season, my only junior B year in Niagara Falls, I was 19 years old. And I had uh, the head coach of the team named Terry Masterson, two twin brothers, Tim and Terry, ran the team, come up to me and say, hey, there's a scout here from the Washington Capitals. He wants to talk to you. And I was like, what? He says, no, it's, I'm not kidding you. There's a scout from the Washington. That was the first time that I had ever even 
put my own name in the conversation of the NHL. And the, the scout's name was Sam McMaster. And there's another gentleman named Jack Button that was with him. And Jack was a head of player personnel in Washington. He's the father of Craig Button, the former GM and now on TSN. And Todd Button, who was one of my assistant coaches eventually. I think he scouts for Toronto or Calgary now. Anyway, they talked to me and told me, you know, we, we like the way you're playing. We're here to watch somebody else play, a 16-year-old kid, but we can't uh, take our eye off of what you're doing out there. And I was, I was just in awe after that conversation. So I went home, and I didn't tell anybody. <clears throat> I was... Uh, I was embarrassed to even think about telling somebody because I really felt like I was this was not going to happen. But they kept showing up. They kept coming to games. And eventually, they, with their influence, got some colleges interested in taking a look at me. So most college kids sign their letter of intent in September, October. This is February when I'm <laughs> starting to talk to teams. And I'm done with high school. I'm out of school. So yeah. I, they, they set up three trips for me to go on, one to Western Michigan, one to Lowell and in the Boston area, and one other one, too, that I'm slipping my mind right now. But anyway, I was uh, set to go on all three. I'm going to go three weekends in a row. I went to Western Michigan. I met with the head coach, Bill Wilkinson. Had, <clears throat> had a tour of the facility and then got a good look around at uh, what uh, Western Michigan was all about. So eventually I um, had a meeting with Bill at the end of the weekend and was waiting for him to ask me to go. And I was like, I'm going to say yes to this. And we sat down. He goes, I, I don't know what to think of you, he says. And he goes, the Capitals are telling me you have potential. I've been to two of your games, and I just see a guy that runs around and doesn't have a lot of discipline. I don't know what to do with you. He says, I can't commit to you yet. So I, I've got to see you one more time. So I was like, okay. So I was kind of taken aback by that. I left and was getting ready to go on a trip to a couple of the Boston schools. I wasn't feeling like going, to be honest with you. I was impressed by Western Michigan. And the morning when I was supposed to leave, he came in and with a phone call and said, hey, I've decided uh, we want to give you an offer for a full scholarship. So after... Uh, about a minute of uh, thinking about it. I said, yep, absolutely, let's do it. And went to Western Michigan, which was about a five-hour drive from my parents' home in Brantford, Ontario. So they were able to um, enjoy the college experience with me and watch a lot of games. What did you major in? And did, what was your, did you get your degree? And what did you study at Western Michigan? So I started in uh, phys ed. I thought that we would run around the gym, and uh, <laughs> it didn't turn out that way. It was, uh, it was a lot of science, and it just wasn't working for my brain. So I quickly switched to sociology and found it interesting, but I have to be honest, I, I didn't put a whole lot of work into it. But, yeah. And I brought in, I think, 23 credits with me because I had uh, gone to grade 13 in Canada. So I'd already basically had my freshman year academically taken care of. Um, so I, I did stay in sociology for a lot of it. I minored in communications. And um, the funny side of that story is I was thinking this communications thing was okay. Yeah. And then they told us, well, you got to get in front of the class and talk. So I got up and started to talk and almost died. So it was like, <laughs> it was like a horrible experience. 
So I quickly shuffled uh, out of communications and stayed in sociology and kind of worked my way through four years there at Western Michigan, but did not graduate. I still have about 20 credits left before graduation. Uh, I would argue with my head coach, Bill Wilkinson, and and Mike Schaefer, the assistant coach, who's the head coach at Cornell University, that uh, I was there to study hockey, and the hockey was what I was going to do. And miraculously, and very fortunately for me, uh, I managed to weasel my way into the NHL. Well, you've come a long way from not being able to stand in front of a class and talk. The communications things worked out for you. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm still not a speech maker. I'm still not... Uh, good at standing up there and having a prepared speech and going over it. I much prefer to do like a question and answer type get together. And uh, I guess I don't think my message is that strong, but to, to, to answer questions is a much better format for me. I always tell that anytime anyone asks me to be a guest speaker, I'm like, be happy to do it. Love to support what you're doing, but uh, let's try to do it where it's a question-answer period with the uh, with the audience. I will tell stories, but I'm much better when they prod me to get me heading in the right direction. So in your time playing Junior C, Junior B, is it safe enough to say that there was not a vigorous training regimen that you stuck to during those days? So the first uh, day I went to Western Michigan was the first day I ever lifted a weight. And I showed up at Western Michigan for the physical the first day. And my head coach watched me, Bill Wilkinson, after committing to me, after already seeing me get drafted that summer by the Washington Capitals in the seventh round, watches me take off my shirt, and I can see his eyes almost roll to the back of his head. I had the sunken chest, the big belly, and skinny arms. And he, I just can only imagine what Bill was saying. I know what he was thinking because we've talked about it to this day. He'd never seen a body that bad in his life that was playing <laughs> hockey. A guy that had just been drafted to the NHL. So quickly they got me in the gym. And the first day they're doing testing with the weights, right? And everyone's warming up with the 245s on the bench press and you got some impressive guys there. I'm like, I'm thinking, geez, these guys are pretty strong. I'd never done the bench press before, but I'm thinking it doesn't look that hard. Like the way these guys are putting up 135, I'm thinking I can handle that. So I literally got down to do my first one, first rep, and I couldn't get the bar back up to put it back in the rack. And, and Mike Eastwood was spotting me, and Eastie had gone through the same thing the year before. He was in probably physically built the same way I was at that time. So he was a sophomore then, and he kind of laughed and was kind enough to help me out. I got through it, and then for the first six months, it was a living hell. I, I swear they physically beat me into shape, basically, and by the end of the uh, six months, I was wanting to go home pretty much every other day, but somehow kind of worked my way into shape and, and then was able to have a decent college career after that. You know, I joke around with, uh, as I mentioned, my partner in crime on television, Shane Knighty. He got drafted in the seventh round by Buffalo, and I say, yeah, they. I mean, they were draft. They were drafting. The, the lights were being turned out when they were drafting you. What do you remember about your being selected in the seventh round by Washington? Well, I was at Flamborough Downs, which is a harness racing track in uh, in uh, close to my hometown, in between Brantford and Toronto, and uh, I was with my girlfriend at the time. Had no idea the draft was even taking place. Um, so I got home and my dad was sitting on the front porch and looking all excited. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? He's waiting, almost waiting for me, right? So 
as a um, 19-year-old kid, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if I'm in trouble. But anyway, he jumps off and he says, uh, you've been drafted. And all I could, I just come out of my mouth, I said, what, are we going to war? He goes, no, you've been drafted to the NHL. The Washington Capitals called the house and they've drafted you today. I had not told my parents that I had talked to some scouts for the Capitals and it had probably been three months since I last heard from them. So I was uh, pleasantly surprised to find out that I'd been drafted. But the, the NHL has a draft list that comes out before every draft and there's about 3,000 kids on it, or at least there was at that time because there was 12 rounds. So I was not on that draft list. And on the draft list is all your uh, basic uh, information, including your birth date. So the Capitals had to call from the draft table and to my home and ask if I was there. My mom said, he's not here. And they said, well, how old is he? <clears throat> and she said, uh, well, he's born November the 8th, 1968. So, oh, good. That's what we thought. So she, they go, they go, listen to this. And while she's on the phone, they make the announcement that uh, in the seventh round, 141st pick, the Capitals take Keith Jones. So my mom got to hear the announcement, and what they told her was tell him to be home at 8 o'clock tonight because we're going to phone him. So I waited anxiously after I got back from Flamborough Downs, and 8 o'clock at night I got a phone call from Brian Murray, who was the GM of the Capitals at that time. Jack Button said hello during the call as well. And uh, Terry Murray was on there to say to welcome me to the organization. And then Sam McMaster got on the phone, the guy that had kind of discovered me. And he told me that uh, he was my godfather and that he uh, you don't know it yet, but you're going to make it to the NHL. And I, he said, I've argued with these guys and I I'm the reason they took you in the seventh round. So. I never forgot that, and just imagine the same kid two months later that's at Western Michigan with his belly hanging out and little little skinny arms is having a conversation where a guy's telling me, you're going to make it to the NHL. So Sam McMaster went on to be the general manager of the LA Kings, and once I made the Capitals in 92, 93, my first trip to LA, I after practice in the morning, a pregame skate, I, I worked my way up to his office and opened the door and gave him a, a big thank you. And and uh, he said, I told you, I told you we we're going to make it to the NHL. And uh, I never forgot that from Sam. So that was a, a great gift. And I was happy to see his reaction when I worked my way up five years later to uh, let him know that uh, I never forgot what he did for me. Is it safe enough to say Sam didn't see your bench press testing at Western? I, I can guarantee he did, or maybe he did. Maybe that's what uh, gave him hope that uh, this kid might have potential. Those, it's rare that those guys fall through the cracks anymore because they're all so physically fit and everyone's uh, movements are scrutinized from the day they probably turned 10 or 11. Hey, what was it like, Jonesy, to play at the old Cap Center, Landover, Maryland? What do you remember most about that venue in those days in Washington? I remember a lot of Tuesday nights where it was half full. And we had a very good team, too. We had a team that in 92, 93 competed with the Penguins, had some really difficult first-round matchups before the Penguins went on to win a couple of Stanley Cups. Uh, some of them were seven-game series along the way. And a couple times, I think the Capitals were right at the top of the charts as far as in the league standings during the regular season. Um, I, re I remember that there was a challenge, though, to, to sell the place out. 
And when we did sell it out come playoff time, it was normally half of the opposition's fans that uh, kind of made it a full house and made it a much more interesting to place to play, which really brings me to Ovechkin and what his influence was in Washington because he he's not only won a Stanley Cup with the team, but he's made hockey uh, a really interesting sport in that Washington area where tick, the ticket's a much more difficult thing to get than it was when I played. But it was bad ice. It was great guys. It was a good team and a good organization, but we could never get over the hump. Goaltending always seemed to be a bit of a thorn on our side, but Olaf Kolzig came in and eventually took the Capitals to the Stanley Cup Finals. <clears throat> but there was multiple challenges there in Washington, and the most like, glaring one was just getting your the fans interested in the team. And we had some really interesting players, including Dale Hunter, uh, Rod Langway, when I started my career there. Well, they're all in now, obviously, Jonesy. And you mentioned Ovechkin. Just a quick aside, I want to get to your time in Philadelphia, but do you think it's realistic to think he might be able to break Gretzky's goal-scoring record? Yeah, it's realistic. This little pause didn't help a whole lot, but hopefully it right. just turns out being only you know 13 or 14 games for the regular season. It's it's going to be tough, though. I mean, it's going to – as you get closer to milestones – even these guys that don't seem like they're human can run into a wall. I think we saw that as Ovi was getting close to his last milestone number. He kind of hit the wall before he got there. It took a, about four or five games where he wasn't picking up a point, which was very un-Ovechkin-like. I can't imagine what it would be like if he gets to be within three goals of Gretzky's record. And if he does that, that would be remarkable in itself. I, I, I've said on record that I think he's going to get it, but I do think there's pause for concern there. It's an incredible number that Wayne achieved. And Ovechkin is, uh, again, he's not getting any younger. It's going to be a challenge. And every night you're trying to slow him down. The advantage he has is a lot of the rules are <clears throat> in his favor now. Uh, without the hooking and the hold and the number of offensive zone face-offs that we have now. Uh, I think that benefits him. Power plays starting in the offensive zone, that benefits him. Uh, so I do think he has some <clears throat> decided advantages. And also, overtime goals uh, are much more frequent. And uh, obviously, he's a big part of that, being out there when the Capitals need him the most. When, after your time in Washington, you end up in Philadelphia... What was that like, Jonesy, to be an athlete in that city, the old spectrum and the passion that the fans have in that city for all their sports teams? Yeah, I played as a visitor in the spectrum, and that was crazy. You, as a capital coming in there within the division, you never wanted to get too big of a lead against that Flyers team because those fans <laughs> were animals. You'd be up 3-1, to one and you'd kind of had a wink-wink deal with the rest of the team that you didn't want to score that fourth goal, especially in the third period, because all hell was going to break loose. But um, so that was great. I was happy that I had the chance to play that. When I came over to the team, the Wells Fargo Center was built. I think it was called the First Union Center at that time, which was kind of appropriate when you look at the initials, the FU Center, which uh, anyone from Philadelphia was very proud of. But um, it was exciting for me. I had just uh, come off of knee surgery in Colorado, played on a very good avalanche team with star players and was fortunate enough to play on a line with Forsberg at times and Sackick for the most part, Adam Deadmarsh, awesome players. And then 
traded to Philly and fell into uh, playing with Lindros and Leclerc, and that was an absolute blast. Uh, every time we stepped on the ice, and well, obviously it wasn't for me, it was for Lindros and Leclerc, there was such a buildup of emotional reaction from the fans that you could just sense that something special was going to happen on that shift. Even on the road, it was like that. Uh, Lindros was such a <clears throat> huge figure and physically could uh, you know, throw his weight around as well. And Leclerc was just a beast. So that was a great experience. The city absolutely loves the Flyers. They still do to this day, although it's a little bit more challenging. It was easier in those days because you could get down in the game and beat the opponent up. Uh, it's more difficult to do that now. So you got to win them back in different ways, and the team's been doing that this year. A couple of players you just mentioned I want to touch on. Peter Forsberg, your time in Colorado. I heard a story. Did he spend a night at the Jones family home in Brantford, Ontario? He did. He did. We had a game in Toronto the night before he came back. He went all to all the little local pubs with me, and the look on the guys' faces in my town – who just couldn't fathom that Peter Forsberg was sitting there at Woody's Pub and Grub having a beer and some fish and chips. Uh, there was just it was a remarkable uh, experience just watching other people's reaction that Forsberg would actually be in a pub playing darts, having a beer, and uh, and having a conversation with fans that never thought in a million years they would ever meet him. Did he stay at your house that night? He stayed at my place. Uh, Dead Marsh was with us as well, and uh, you know we had a great group of guys on that team. We we did a lot of little side road trips along the way, and including a couple to Vegas, where Peter and I went to Vegas and got in a cab. And the cabbie was driving. Uh, Dead Marsh was with us at that time too. We told the cabbie to turn there. Cabbie tried to make the turn, took the island right out in the middle. The car almost rolled. Thank God it didn't. Uh, we, we arrived eventually safe and sound, but it was something I'll never forget. And we had kind of played hooky on the team. We snuck away from a game in LA, like a, a day off in LA and jumped over to Vegas for a few hours. And it wouldn't have been a great thing if we didn't make it back healthy. That's for sure. And you mentioned Eric Lindros and, you know, the force he was as a player, but did you save his life? What's that story? Yeah, it's an interesting, I, I get credit for it. I, I'd have to say that uh, the doctor saved his life, but I did uh, have some, uh, what of a um, influence on getting him to the hospital. Uh, let's just say that he was not looking good. He had kind of turned a very white. And I recognized that that was a sign that, uh, he was leaking oil that there was uh, he was running out of blood his lung had been punctured so i did have uh he gave me a lot of credit for it let's put it that way uh i probably got a little too much credit for it but um it was it was good that everything worked out well for him but what was that scenario jones you were on the road right and you were roommates and you could tell he was not in good in a good spot he had i kind of woke up and he looked and he was just kind of moaning he had thought he hurt his ribs the night before so uh, that and then I suddenly I looked and I said that's more than ribs or something that's uh, not gone right here. So that's uh, that's basically what happened there. And then eventually the uh, the doctor saved his life because he was losing a lot of blood. I want to touch on a couple of more things, Jonesy. Um, is it true that the 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 primo five overtime game, the goal, the Flyers and and Penguins? Did you not have one shot on net in five overtimes? I didn't. I played. Th <laughs> I think I played thirty seven minutes and fifty seconds. The reason I know that they all gave us a game sheet in a beautiful frame 
to remind us of this unbelievable night and that five overtime game. And I believe me, I have a lot of mental memories from that game where we're just having a lot of laughs. It was one of the best experiences of my life and one of the last for me in the NHL, um, the last playoff experiences that I had in the NHL. And, uh, it was a crazy night, but yeah, that's a fact. I had no shots on goal. I had two missed shots. I had zero hits, zero block shots. I had uh, a plus one, though. I was on the ice oh, for, the, for the primo goal that won it in five overtimes, and my two missed shots came on that same shift. I almost I had, I shot in the offensive zone, <clears throat> obviously. Puck went back into our end i wanted to change but i was a right winger i was a long way from our bench had to go all the way back to our end my legs could barely make it i turned to head back up luke richardson tried to hit me with a pass i missed it because i was exhausted primo picked it up rushed through the neutral zone i got to the red line and made a direct left turn to head to the bench didn't even see primo shoot the puck i saw our bench erupt and start to jump on the ice. I wasn't close enough to get off the ice. So I'm th- all I was thinking was, we're going to get too many men on the ice here. And, uh, and then I realized that we had just won this game that I didn't think was ever going to end. And I grabbed Talkin. Talkin. Rick Talkin was heading into the pile. And he was supposed to go on for me. He'd had one leg over the boards at the time. And I grabbed him and I said, hey, that's my plus. And then uh, he laughed and we went on and celebrated a five-overtime win. Crazy times. Um, the the other statistical anomaly I wanted to ask you about is, is plus minus sometimes I think can be overrated, but was there a minus seven during your AHL days? Yeah, and ironically, I was called up to the NHL after that game, but I was playing for Barry Trotz in Baltimore. We were playing a game, I believe, against the Utica Devils at that time. Jimmy Jackson, I think, was doing the call. My partner now for the the Flyers games was calling Utica games on the radio. And we lost the game 10-8. I scored two goals on the power play. The last goal that made it 10-8 was into the empty net. But it shouldn't have counted because the clock had expired. And I was watching it. So I grabbed the linesman. I started yelling at him. And he's like, what are, you, what are you doing? So I get to the ref and I'm yelling. It was only one ref in those days, right? And I'm yelling, that goal should not count. The buzzer went. And he goes, why the hell do you care? I said, I'm effing minus seven. And he said, and they started to laugh. So I got off the ice. The next day we come to practice. I'm still angry about it. Barry Trotz has a video meeting. That's a true story. Video meeting and shows all seven goals that I was on the ice for and informs the entire team he's on for seven against, or he's a minus seven. Yeah, so he's on for seven even strength goals against. And he had his man on every goal. And it was a true story. I was a victim. That shows you a plus minus when it doesn't work in your favor isn't as important as it is when it's working in your favor. So, well, it should have been, in your mind, a minus six, first off, right? And secondly, you got called up? Yeah, I had two goals on the power play. I had played uh, the first, I want to say the first 10 games that season in Baltimore. I I think I had eight goals at that time. I kept arguing with Barry Trotz that I wanted to get called up. I told you earlier I wanted to play the first game at Maple Leaf Gardens. That didn't happen. But I was having some level of success. Steve Conowalczyk was in the same boat, and we were both playing together. 
So I'm in, uh, I was rooming with two guys in the minors. Baltimore, very close. We shared a practice facility with the Capitals. They're on the road in Calgary playing a game. They've been losing in the first 10 games. A couple of guys are hurt, a couple of guys suspended. And I'm thinking, I, I might get a chance here. So I had a loft at the apartment. The two guys that are playing on my team were downstairs. They were veterans in the minor leagues. And I'm like listening to the game on my eye. Uh, what was those things we had? Uh, uh, Walkman, my Sony Walkman. Yeah. <clears throat> I've got the game on the radio. It's uh, probably 11 o'clock at night. They were playing Vancouver. And... Kevin Miller, who had come over in the offseason in a trade for Dino Cicerelli, if you remember that, which was a real lopsided trade, takes a five-minute spearing penalty in the third period. And I'm thinking, man, this might be my chance. I, you know, that just it's the way it's incredible. I'm listening to this game. So my roommate taps me on the shoulder. I didn't even hear the phone ring. It's 11:30 at night, Eastern. And he's like, hey, uh, it's David Poyle. And I'm like, what? This is David Poyle. So I grabbed the phone, and David Poyle says, Hey, Jonesy, uh, where you're getting called up. Uh, you got a flight leaving for Calgary tomorrow morning uh, from Baltimore, BWI Airport at 630. I'm like, Yeah, good. I'll see you there. You know, so I'm getting the call up to the NHL, and I actually was listening to the game on my Walkman uh, and kind of figuring out in my own mind that this might be my chance. And I arrived at the airport. Steve Konowalczyk was there at the same time, too, and I'm going – damn, I, maybe I'm not playing. Maybe they're calling us both up, and I might not get that chance. But we both got in the lineup that night. Hey, uh, I wanted you to touch on, if you could, Jonesy, um, your relationship with Craig Berube and what he's meant to you in, in your life and just how far back you guys go. Well, I can tell you this. He was a big factor in my NHL career because he provided a lot of support for me in my role. Uh, my role was to stir the pot, uh, my role was to irritate the opposition. My role was to get tough guys to chase me around. My role was to change the momentum in the game once in a while, fight a guy that was in my range, take a beating once in a while along the way. But having a guy like Craig Berube to back me up made me a lot more confident player and made our team a lot more confident player. And we were great friends away from the game as well. Chief was a very very fanatical fan of the game he loved hockey and we would watch it on our off nights with dale hunter who had a major influence on all of us including rick tockett as well and it was all about the love of the game we dissected games that we watched we found out little things about players on the opposition that we could use to bother them and the the next game that we played against them Maybe they backed away from somebody. Maybe they didn't pass the puck on a 2-on-0 breakaway. Maybe it was just a little thing that you could tweak them with verbally uh, right in front of the bench and in front of their bench that would be well-timed to try to highlight some selfishness that they might have shown. But all of that was based on us hanging out together, drinking beer, eating pizza, and getting up and showing up for work the next day. And uh, those guys were uh, great influences on me and are some of my best friends in the world today. Yeah, I don't know how much of that happens anymore, right? It's um, Maybe it does, but I can't imagine it would nearly as much as it did back in your day. Yeah, the protection part there isn't as much either, right? It's right in that right. type of role where that type of player made everybody on the bench feel like they were a little bit bigger. You grew a couple inches when you had a couple of guys like Baruby uh, standing there on the bench beside you and jumping up when someone was coming after you and letting that player know that he was coming after them shortly and... Uh, it's uh, 
it was a, always an interesting uh, thing to me just to see how that dynamic worked between the tough guys on teams when, when I was playing the game. Is that when you're Don, where your Don King nickname came from? It is, yeah. I set up more fights, and Ruby was the one guy that accepted those fights. I mean, I played with some tough guys that didn't appreciate uh, me setting up the fights for them. And a lot of those occurred when you're sitting, uh, players are lined up in front of your bench. And Barubi would be sitting there getting ready for the face-off, and one of the tough guys on the opposition would be sitting beside, standing beside him, getting ready for the draw. And I would say, "Hey, such and such, Barubi's gonna kick your <laughs> rear end right now." And sure enough, those two would fight, and Chief loved it. I've never, I've never seen a player lick his chops more when there was a chance to drop the gloves with somebody. Hey, the last thing I wanted to touch on with you, Jonesy, is is this. Um, I always think about there's a, a great line in that Moneyball movie with uh, about Billy Bean where, you know, he says, we're all told at some point we can't play anymore. You know, sometimes we're told that at 15, sometimes it's at 40. For you, it was at 31, right? And, and you had some knee injuries and, you know, but what was it like to, in one appointment there early in that 2000 season to, to find out that you weren't going to be able to play anymore? Yeah, it'd been a long road, Dave. I'd kind of been through four or five different surgeries. I was still playing. I was, my play was declining and my knee was bugging me all the time. So we went to get a, I guess about a fifth or sixth opinion to a doctor that was with the Hartford Whalers. Um, and it was, the used to be the Whalers were gone at that point. So Jimmy McCross and the athletic trainer in Philadelphia went with me and Dr. Fulkerson was his name. He was a knee specialist. I was going there thinking that he would have the answer to fix what was bugging me. And showed him the knee, he took one look at it, he came back in the room within about five minutes and he asked me if I liked golfing. And I said, uh, not really. He says, well, you better start because uh, you're not going to be playing hockey anymore with that knee. So that was, uh, that was the news that I received. And I was barking like your dog when I got that news. <laughs> She's a real treat, isn't she? <laughs> Jonesy, this, this has been a real treat. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Can't thank you enough. And hopefully we can see you in person here sometime soon. You got it, Dave. Take care. Feed that dog, buddy. Great to have Keith Jones join us on the interview series on the Sheriff Lawless and Some Guy Named Dave podcast. Thanks for listening.